listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Welcome to another episode of Let the Bible Speak as we continue our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy. This first letter of Paul to Timothy is part of what we call the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And for that reason, there are some who perhaps think these letters have little to say to the church at large. They may feel that they relate very much to the Christian minister and to the pastor, but less to the person in the pew. But I think we will see as we study the Word of God afresh today that there is a relevance in the content of these letters to all of the Lord's people. So let me read to you chapter 4 of First Timothy from the verse number 8 through to the verse number 10. First Timothy 4 verse 8 says, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. Well, let's just ask the Lord to help us again as we study his word today. Eternal God, our Father in heaven, give us help now. We, we love your word. We want to understand it. We want to live by it. And to help us in the preaching of the word now and also to all those who hear we pray the word of God would benefit their souls in Jesus name amen one of the interesting things about the modern phenomena of social media is to read how people describe themselves in their biographies how would you describe yourself in a few words I have to say it's encouraging to see how many people put the term Christian in their profile so you may get someone who will put in their biog a list of terms or words, perhaps dentist, basketball, artist, food critic, Christian. Now this is not a criticism of such a biog, it is simply a comment that for the Christian, being a Christian is not a part of your life. It's not an add-on aspect of your life, but is your very life. We are Christians in all that we do. We ought to be a Christian dentist, a Christian basketball player, a Christian artist, a Christian food critic, whatever whatever occupation might be, whatever our hobbies might be, we are to do those for Christ's sake. To live is Christ is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Life comes from Christ and all of our lives are lived for Christ. I suppose a frustration that I have in the present day is that for many, uh, Christianity is so shallow and so superficial. To be a Christian for many is to be born as such, perhaps to go to church, but it has minimal, if any, impact on the rest of life. Such does not do any justice to the portion that we've just read today. Godliness is something that should be pursued with athletic vigour. Godliness is profitable, and it is to be pursued with the vigour of an athlete determined to win the prize. 
we are to strenuously and sacrificially exert ourselves to the end of godliness. Godliness of heart, a heart of devotion for the Lord, love and fear of God shown in godly thoughts and words and deeds requires effort. And yet that is simply what a Christian is to be. It is what God expects of those who name the name of Christ. And such a model of Christianity is far removed from the superficiality that prevails today. And that sense of today's superficiality might in turn explain something of the lack of zeal that is present in many ministries. There are many who labour in the so-called gospel ministry who seem to exert very little effort and industry in their work. They drift through lives and they are really seemingly unmindful of the obligation of labouring for the Lord. For Paul, the importance of godliness was such that it involved great effort. Having described godliness in verse 8 and 9, he then says in verse 10, For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach. For Paul, pastoral labours involved labour. The pastoral ministry involves hard work. And so today I want to really think with you about this matter of pastoral labour. Yes, it will have application to people like me involved in the pastoral ministry, but it should also impact those of you who are listening who are not pastors. It should help you to pray for your pastor. It should help you to understand what you'd expect from your pastor. And also I believe there are some implications from their labours regarding our own responsibilities. So let me begin with the subject of the end of pastoral labour. What is the purpose, the aim, the objective of pastoral labour? Well, the text begins, For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach. The therefore reflects back to the previous verses, where Paul has said that godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. For therefore we both labour. Godliness is beneficial for the now and for the life that is to come. And so in light of the benefit of godliness, Paul labours that the Lord's people would know this grace of godliness. In other words, he is labouring that people would be godly. Hence the objective, the goal, the end of pastoral labour is that those under the care of the pastorate are indeed godly in their words, in their lives and in their very thinking. We thought last time that the implication here is that it is God's will that we are godly. But I suspect there are many churches that do not have the aim of godliness at the very forefront of their objectives. For many churches, the aim is numerical growth or financial growth. Now, I understand that when there is godliness among the people, there will be a commitment to public worship. And hence there will be a growth in the congregational attendance. But if our goal is for growth without godliness, then it is a false goal. We will desire growth, but we want the growth in the church attendance to be as a result of the godliness of those who are attending. Also, with regards to financial growth, we understand that those who are godly will show that godliness in their giving to the Lord's work. Hence, there will be increasing financial growth in a church when there is an advance in the godliness of those who attend. 
but there are many large, financially stable churches who have no pattern of godliness amongst their members. Hence, we should be urgent in prayer that the pastoral ministry in our churches would have the burden to see people with an increased devotion to the Lord, an increasing love for God, and an increasing practice of living in the fear of God. It must be our desire and prayer that our churches are known in this area for godliness, that our words and our actions show us to be distinctly like Christ. Christ Jesus himself observes and looks at the church. We see the commentary of Christ regarding a church in Revelation chapter 2, where the Lord says, I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, and how they canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast laboured, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And here we have the tragic testament of a church that is commendable for their actions, for their external separation from sin and from falsehood, for their perseverance in their allegiance for Jesus' name, and yet their heart, their devotion, has gone from Christ their first love. And so godliness is this pursuit of a love for Christ, a love for God, which then is displayed in actions. But actions without the right heart are not true. Actions with the heart are those that are truly good in the sight of Christ. And so it is a reminder to us again that our churches exist for the purpose that those who are in our churches are marked by godliness. They're marked by a likeness to Christ and a devotion to his name. That is the end of pastoral labour. And in light of such, we might think about the exertion of pastoral labour. Paul is so convinced about the great need for godliness and its benefit that he gives his all to the task, no matter the cost. He says, for therefore we both labour and suffer reproach. The word labour is a word that is derived from word for tiredness. It's used of the fishermen in Luke chapter 5 when they say, we have toiled all night. People don't tend to think of pastoral labours as being that which leads to tiredness. We often think of tiredness from labour being reserved for those who, who work outside, perhaps for the farmer or the construction worker. But Paul tells us that Christian ministry should be marked by such exertion that it leads to tiredness. There should be a labour a labour in the word. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 tells us that the elders that rule well should be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. Here's a model for Christian ministry today. They are those who must labour, exert themselves in the word and in doctrine or in the teaching of the word of God. It is this doctrine that is according to godliness. 1 Timothy 6 and the verse number 3. It is the teaching of the truth which leads to godliness in Titus chapter 1 verse 1. We see that the teaching of the word of God is the primary means whereby the people of God know godliness. And so if Paul's burden is to labour for godliness, he will labour in the means to that end. And the means to that end is the ministry of the word of God. It is the teaching of the truth. I want to encourage you, if you're listening here and you're a member of a faithful, biblically ordered church, I encourage you that you would encourage your pastor to be industrious, 
in the word and in doctrine, that that would be their primary focus and their task. There are so many things that can distract the man of God and it must be their primary focus that they labor in the word and doctrine, that as they bring the word of God to you week by week, you understand and you can see the fruit of those who have labored hard to understand the word and then to present that word in your hearing. And so the pastor will labor in the word, but they will also be careful to labor in prayer. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, we have the example of Epaphras. Epaphras, who was a servant of Christ, who was one of the people from Colossae, he was one of them. I believe he likely had served as one of their pastors. And it says of him in the language of Paul that Epaphras was always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you. Here's a pastor with a burden for the church. He's a burden for their godliness, a burden for their progress. And out of that burden, he has this this determination to labor fervently for them in prayer. What a blessing it is to have a pastor who prays for you. What a blessing it is to have a man of God who will take you to the throne of grace, that God may give you grace to help in every time of need. Now, of course, this is a challenge to every minister of the Word of God. It's a challenge to me as I bring the Word of God afresh to you today, that I'd be one, a pastor marked by labor in the Word and in prayer. Paul himself serves as such an example. He preaches Christ. He warns every man in Colossians chapter 1. He teaches every man in all wisdom. And he says about his labors, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And here I want to ask you, please pray for your pastors. Paul says that he labors because he labors striving according to God's working in him. It is God who works in him mightily. So pray for your pastor that they would know the grace of God to labor with such exertion to the end that you might be godly in the sight of God. Now why? Why is such exertion necessary? There are many today in this culture of superficial Christianity who would hear my words today and say that such is just unnecessary. Well, my thought is that in the word of God, godliness is not looked as something that comes easily. We are godly by the grace of God. We are made more like Christ as God works in us. But yet in the word of God, there is the recognition that such godliness requires exertion. Exertion on the part of the pastor in his labor and also exertion on the behalf of those who are exercising themselves unto godliness. That is the challenge of the word of God. We do not let go and let God. We exercise ourselves unto godliness. We exert ourselves. We do so individually and the pastor is to do so on our behalf. We realize the power of remaining sin. Paul in Romans 7 teaches that sin does not reign in the child of God, but it does remain. He would say that in his flesh dwelleth no good thing. He understands that the good that he would, he does not, and the evil that he would not, that he does. He understands that sin dwelleth in him. And it is that remaining sin that makes the battle to godliness so fierce. Add to that the enemy of our soul, Satan, and we will see that godliness comes in the context of exertion. 
Now, please understand and listen carefully. I am not suggesting for a second that we work unto salvation. But I am saying that the Word of God teaches that we work out our salvation. You should take the time to read Philippians chapter 2 and the verses 12 and 13, where we are told there to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But we do so because God works in us, both to will and to do. It is as God works in us that we work out our salvation. We do not work to salvation. We are not saved by our works. But those who are saved work unto godliness. Those who are saved will exercise themselves. They will determine to use the means of grace, prayer and the ministry of the word, so that they become more like Christ day by day. And so may the example of the pastor in their exertions to godliness so teach us the importance of that very thing, that as they would exert themselves on our behalf, so we would determine that we would not live unto the world and not live unto self, but live unto God with our hearts wholeheartedly sold out to the Lord. And so we're seeing in these verses the end and the exertion of pastoral labour. And in the last place, we will see the encouragement in pastoral labour. Let me read to you again the words of verse number 10. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, this latter part of verse number 10 is certainly a challenging verse. The because part, because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, the because part leads into something that is encouraging Paul in his efforts. He labours, he suffers reproach because of what follows in the verse. What he's saying is that no matter how hard the work is, or no matter how heavy the cost in terms of reproach, It is worth it. It is worth it because he trusts in God, who is the Saviour. Now, in these words, there are some difficulties. What does Paul mean that God is the Saviour of all men, especially of those that believe? We may read it, that God saves everybody, but especially believers. Some may have read it in terms of some form of two-tiered salvation that there is a universal salvation for everybody that ever lived. But that salvation is specially for those that believe and they, they receive some higher level of salvation. Well, that, I believe, is not the teaching of this text. Let's take these terms in order. First of all, you have the word saviour. This word is used generally for saving from sin. It describes the, the work of Christ. He is the saviour. He is the one who came to die, that he would save us from our sins. Now, quite rightly, some would suggest that this word saviour speaks of God as a preserver, as a sustainer. And thus they say that common grace is in view in this verse. That God is kind to all men, preserving their lives, but he's especially kind to believers. Well, that truth is fine. In itself, it is taught elsewhere in the Word of God that God is indeed kind to all men. He preserves the life even of those who do not thank him. But such an interpretation does not, for me, do justice to the context of eternal life. Paul is emphasizing that godliness is profitable, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so he's describing the fact that God saves people and he saves them from all eternity. I acknowledge that there are some very good commentators who would look at this 
word saviour and say it is indeed describing God as the preserver. Uh, But personally, I'm not so sure. What about then the term all men? Well, I think in the context of 1 Timothy, that is somewhat easier to understand. It is not describing all men without exception, but rather all men without exclusion. We've seen it being used that way in chapter 2, where Paul exhorts the church to offer prayers for all men. And that clearly cannot be that we pray for all men without exception, but that we pray for all sorts of men, even kings and rulers, as we have in the following verse. In the same chapter, in the verse number 4, we understand that God wills that all men would be saved. And yet Paul nowhere teaches universal salvation. We understand that in the word of God there are those who are lost and go to a lost eternity in hell for all eternity. And so, in the teaching of Paul, we understand that God's salvation is for all sorts of men, male and female, Jew and Gentile. The ascetics of this chapter were asserting that salvation was only for those who practiced their asceticism. But Paul is saying, no, God is the saviour of all sorts of men. And so you have the word saviour, you have the word all men, and then you have this word specially. God, who is the saviour of all men, specially of those that believe. Now, we use the word specially or especially as a means of defining a subgroup within a larger group. You might say, I like fruit, but especially apples. Or I like sport, but especially soccer. Whatever the case may be, we use that word especially to define a narrower group within a larger group. And the word is used that way in the Bible. However, there has been some evidence that has shown that the word that is used here especially is used at that time in the sense of to be precise. So in other words, it could be, reading this way, that God is the saviour of all men, especially or precisely those that believe. It's used to precisely give the definition of what the speaker has said. In other words, Paul has said, God is the saviour of all men, Precisely or namely those that believe. It may well be used that way in Second Timothy chapter 4 in the verse number 13. Where Paul says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Or it may be the books, i.e. or definedly the parchments, precisely the parchments. It's hard to be certain, but to my mind that fits very well with the context of Paul's teaching elsewhere. And so what is being said by Paul here is he labours for the godliness of God's people because he trusts in the living God. He has faith in God to do his word. He has faith in the living God who is able to keep his promises. And the living God is able to save men from every nation. Hence, Paul's labours are not fruitless. God is able to save men from every nation and especially or precisely those that believe. The salvation of men through the labours of the apostle is only enjoyed by those who believe. So that makes most sense in the context of these verses and in the rest of the Bible. There is no salvation without faith. And therefore we should not see this verse as an encouragement that God will forgive all in the end even those who don't believe. This makes a special sense when we think of how this is an encouragement to Paul. 
He's encouraging himself that his labors are not in vain. His sufferings are not pointless because he labors for God, for God who is alive, and for this God who will of all men to be saved. I think of Philippians chapter 1 and the verse number 3 and following where Paul encourages himself when he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's encouraged as he prays for them, as he labours for them, that God will perform what he has promised, even at the day of judgment when Christ returns in his glory. Oh, as we think about these verses, I want to close by reminding you that God expects his people to be marked by godliness, with a devotion of heart for God and with a holiness of life. And I remind you, I exhort you, to exercise yourself unto that end. I challenge those who perhaps are involved in pastoral labour. Are you labouring, exerting yourself to the end that those under your care would be marked by this godliness of life? May that be the end of our ministry to produce those by God's grace who are walking with God, who love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength and such a love as then seen in their labours for the Lord and in the determination to live a holy life that is pleasing to God. And what an encouragement that all of our efforts, they are fruitful in the will of God. Without God, our efforts would bring about nothing. But God, who is the saviour of sinners, so works that our labours are indeed unto his glory and unto the good of his people. I'd ask you to perhaps pray with me now, that as we close today's broadcast, that we would pray for those who serve as pastors in our churches. And perhaps you could pray for your pastor. And also, that as I close in prayer, that I'll pray for your soul. And that God would enable you to exercise yourself unto godliness. So let us all pray together. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that encourages us to live lives of godliness to your glory and for our good. I pray for those listening that you would enable them by your spirit and through your word to become more like Christ day by day. And I pray for pastors that they would labor in the word and in doctrine, that they would labor in prayer and that you'd bless their labors, bless my labors to the glory and honor of Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.